extended passage, but it tells the fullness of this really important story that Todd uh, alluded to earlier. The temple has indeed fallen into very hard times, and the place of covenant, that is their place of worship, has been corrupted, and they lost sight of the responsibility the care for widows and orphans, making space for sojourners in their midst, and reflecting their relationship with God and one another to their neighbors. Now, the spiritual loss translates onto a much larger stage. It wasn't just problems within Israel. It was how they contended with their neighbors who were much stronger than they were, and they paid a heavy price. Their neighbors exacted a very heavy price. They had lost their autonomy as a nation, and they never really would regain it. So we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah of Boscoth. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, to the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to the high priest Hilkiah and have him count the entire sum of money that has been brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workers who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workers who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons, and let them use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked for them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly." The high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workers who have oversight of the house. Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, The priest Hilkiah has given me a book, Shaphan then read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and the king's servant, Asiah, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah." concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that has been kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of his book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, Akvor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalem, son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She said in Jerusalem in the second quarter where they consulted her. She declared to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster on this house and on all its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and have made offerings to other gods so that they have provoked me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But as to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace." Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring on this place. They took the message back to the king. Then the king directed that all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem should be gathered to him. They went up to the house of the Lord, and with him went all of the people of Judah, all the inhabitants of Israel, the priests, the prophets, and all the people, both small and great, He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, keeping his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. All the people joined in this covenant. Let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. Friends, I would invite you to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our community. Amen. So I know for a fact that there are, um, that there are some golfers in this church, like me. Hmm? Golfers? Oh, yeah, see, and some of you I've golfed with, okay. Um, For those of you who um, don't golf or don't understand the game, um, stick with me, we'll get there. But for those of you who golf, there is this wonderful, amazing thing called a mulligan, right? Oh, mulligans are wonderful. You hit a bad shot, and you say, I'm going to do a mulligan, which is a do-over, if you're on the tee, you tee the ball up. If, if, if it's a bad shot, you pull a ball out of the pocket and put it down. And it's like the bad shot never happened. Aren't mulligan, those of you who are golfers, okay, true confession time, mulligan, mulligan takers? Yeah, 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 yeah. If you golf, at some point, you've taken a mulligan. Yes, even Tiger Woods took mulligans. Yes, Even Phil Mickelson, hallowed San Diego Phil Mickelson, has taken mulligans, okay? And anybody who is a golfer who says that they've never taken a mulligan, they're probably lying. But you didn't hear that from me. Mulligan is just this wonderful grace that golfers extend to one another. To do that do-over. Wouldn't life be great if we could do a mulligan? 
Wouldn't life be great is if, if we hit, you know, we really, we really just put our foot in it and we know that we make a mistake. Wouldn't it be nice to just roll it back and do a do-over? My bad. You know, life isn't quite like that. In spite of what science fiction and time travel would tell you, life is just not like that. There aren't do-overs. But even though there aren't mulligans in life, there is grace. Because even in the midst and even in the throes of our, of our worst mistakes, we're not, we're not mired to wallow in those mistakes. There's a way forward. There's a way through it. And there's two things that are, that are really very important. The first thing is the recognition that we have made a mistake and the resolution that we take to let's not make that mistake again. Okay, does that sound familiar? You make a mistake and go, okay, yeah, that was really painful. Let's not do that one again. But then the other part of it, which is equally important, is what you learn. Have you ever had anybody tell you that the only bad part of making mistakes is if you don't learn from the mistake that you've made? Now, here's the thing. These two, these two gifts of recognizing and not wanting to make the same mistake, but then also learning from the mistake, these things are designed to be balanced in our lives. It's not just one or the other, either or. It really is a both and. And to have these two things operating in a balanced way is really a good image of what the scriptural, the spiritual understanding of repentance is about. Repentance oftentimes gets talked about in, okay, well, let's just not make that mistake again, okay, where we turn away from our mistake, okay? I've known plenty of people whose their thought of repentance is not make that same mistake again and they'll go in a different direction and they'll just make a different mistake and they'll make a different mistake and they'll make a different mistake. But repentance is not just turning away from a mistake. Repentance is about how we turn our life and our attention back to God. It's not just running away from something. It is moving and living toward something else. And it requires both of these things, saying, okay, I'm not going to make that mistake again, but I'm also going to choose a specific path forward. It's a balanced piece. And see, this idea of repentance gives us insight into this pretty long and extended passage from Second Kings that I read. Okay? There's a lot in this to unpack. There's probably about three sermons worth here, but I'll try and give you at least a taste of it. As Todd had mentioned, as I had mentioned before I read the scripture, and as the scripture itself expounds, is that the people of Israel are in a really bad way right now. They have lost their way as God's covenant people. And it had been going on for generations they're, right now, they're in about the end of the 7th century 
uh, before the common era, seven, seven centuries before Jesus. The temple has fallen into disrepair. They're bringing in um, false gods and false idols and like turning it into a, 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 a spiritual theological smorgasbord. Uh, just come in and worship whoever you want. Whereas where the temple was designed to be about keeping people centered in their relationship with God and keeping people centered into this covenant that they have with God, okay? And it was, they were in a really bad way and they had made mistake after mistake after mistake. The northern kingdom, the 10 tribes that had split away from Jerusalem, by the time that Josiah becomes king, they're gone already. The Assyrians have come in, they have conquered them, they have committed cultural and spiritual genocide against um, the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom just is gone. So they've already experienced this, this incredible desolation. And then along comes Josiah. And Josiah recognizes where they've been and how, how they have made mistakes and how his predecessors have made mistakes, and not just the kings, but the priests and the prophets. You know, it's, it's a community effort to get into a place that, that is this far from God. And he begins this period of renewal, finding the book of the law, recognizing the mistake, but then also with the other side of repentance, learning from the mistake and recommitting people to live a life within this covenant. See, Josiah is leading the people of Israel in a system of repenting, of drawing people back toward God. Now, when we read this whole passage, we see what Josiah is doing, but then it seems kind of gloomy and doomy when they, um, when they go to consult the prophetess, and the prophetess is saying, yeah, this is all great and everything, but this isn't going to get you past what's coming. Okay, now, let's step back from this because I'm going to give you a little bit of an editorial piece. What we have as the, new, as the Old Testament right now, Hebrew Scripture, lock, stock, and barrel, was written, was rewritten, and reinterpreted from the experience of the exile. What is going to be coming in just a few short years, within a generation of Josiah's reign, is when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come in, they lay siege to Jerusalem, they, they, they basically empty out the country of Judah, and they lay siege to Jerusalem for 18 months until the walls come down, the temple is destroyed, and basically 90% of Jerusalem and Judah are gone. They've become refugees, they've died from starvation or war, or they've been carted off to Babylon. And the recognition, the collective re recognition of the, of the leaders was, oh my gosh, we really blew it with God. God is so angry with us right now. And if only we turn back to God, if only we follow the rules again and not make the same mistake, then everything is going to be okay. So you take that perspective and you write that back into Josiah as a warning but here's the thing. 
even though there's this image, the sword of Damocles hanging over Israel's head, that doesn't dissuade Josiah from doing what he knows is right. Not making the same mistakes and forging a path forward for the kingdom of Israel. And there's value in that for us. And it's, it's interesting because it's not, you could really easily make the thing, well, why, if, if the doom and the gloom is going to come anyway, if the cataclysm is going to come anyway, then why even bother with repentance? It just seems like a whole waste of time, right? Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Josiah sees something else. And this something else is important for us. It's very important for us. Because repentance as a spiritual act isn't one and done. We don't repent once and say, whoo-hoo, we're good. Repentance is about how we live going forward, how we continue to live going forward. What we discover later on in chapter 23 of 2 Kings is that Josiah, as the king and the leader that would lead Israel to repentance, ended up being effectively a one and done. I want to show you this. This is 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Before him, that was Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did anyone like him arise after him. It's one thing for Josiah to do what he was doing, but if the person who comes after Josiah isn't committed to that same work, and that's exactly what happened. Israel fell back into old habits, and all the good work that Josiah had done was unraveling. And within a generation, here comes Nebuchadnezzar, and the rest, as they say, is history. We learn something very valuable about repentance from Josiah's story and the history of Israel at this point how important it is to continue to walk this path, to do this work, to not tire in seeking to grow our relationships with one another and with God, to learn from our mistakes, to make amends, to repent, to turn back toward God, and this is, a, this is an important part of this particular Sunday in the life of the church. This is, for those of you who don't know what the church worship calendar is, this is the last Sunday of the year. Next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, begins a new worship year. We start our worship year with Advent and the Nativity and the birth of Christ. This Sunday, the last Sunday of the year, traditionally was called Christ the King Sunday or the Reign of Christ Sunday. This is the Sunday where we kind of stop and we pause and we, we kind of we, we split ourselves. Part of us, we look back. We look back at the year that's been. I will guarantee 
that you are right now experiencing what you couldn't have conceived of one year ago today. Me too. But that's okay. Because within this newness, within this path, and our willingness to learn and to grow through life and through faith, we now get to look forward into a new year, into another expression of Advent, and maybe even see possibilities for life and for faith and for ministry that a year ago wasn't, wasn't even on our radar. And the way that we get from that through today into next week and beyond and into the new year is through this choice and this recognition that our life, our faith, our repentance, our spiritual formation and growth is about the choices that we make now and the choices that we make tomorrow and the next day and the next day as we seek not to appease God's anger for the mistakes that we've made, but live into the hope and the possibility that God has for us all the time. <coughs> Excuse me. Advent, the, one of the great themes of Advent is hope. And the recognition that no matter what is happening in our life, in our, in our community, in our world. The questions that we have, the, the, the pain that we have, the uncertainty that we have. Advent is always there to remind us that God sees this and God knows this and that God walks this path with us. So much so that God made God's self known to us in the birth of a child. A child that would teach us the power of self-giving love, a child that would lead us into a new life, a child that would lead us into new understandings of our relationship with one another and with God, a child who would not just teach us, but live the concept of resurrection for us, with us, and through us. And that becomes the basis of that hope. That hope that we live into by choosing to learn and grow from everything that has been and opening our life and our heart to what can be and what can come next. For all of us, individually, but also Collectively, I can't even begin to describe how excited I am to be with you all and see what God has in store for us together, but to see what God can do in us and through us and the ways that we can be leavened in our community and in our world to reflect the hope that we're going to celebrate as soon as worship is over today, the journey of Advent begins. I can't wait to see what is going to come next.
You know, mulligans are great for a golf course, but you know what, in life, I think I just had this moment of clarity. I don't need a mulligan in my life. I don't need to do a do-over in my life. I'm happy to walk and to take the next faithful step. So let's do that together. Take the next faithful step. Amen.